I invite you to open your Bible to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, we continue in our study of the gospel according to Mark. And I'm going to have you if, you, if you have one of these Bible ribbons, maybe put it in Mark 6, because we're going to come back to Mark 6. And in an unusual break of methodology, I'm not going to read you the passage uh, that I'm going to preach to you at the outset. Uh, it's a rare day, but it's, it is that kind of a day. We'll look at Mark 30, I'm sorry, Mark 6, verse 30 to verse 44. But I just want you to mark it here. It's the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. It's a story recorded in all four Gospels. It's the only story that is common in all four Gospels. And it's one that Mark considers in a sizable way uh, alongside of, of John and his Gospel. It's a really important uh, miracle, if only for the fact that all four gospel writers record it, not just in the synoptics, but John as well. And, and so it's, it's I think, a, a central miracle. It's a significant miracle. It's, it's one that uh, should be familiar to all of us. But I think to understand it well, we need to start somewhere else. So why don't you turn in your Bible, now that you've marked Mark chapter 6, and turn in your Bible to Psalm 23. Psalm 23. We go from familiar to even more familiar. It says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures, He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou dost prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Thou hast anointed my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness And loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The Lord is the shepherd of his people. This concept is thoroughly considered all the pages of Scripture. God as shepherd is most famously seen in Psalm 23, a psalm known by uh, almost everyone, whether you grew up in church or not. Psalm 23 is, is one of the most famous passages of Scripture in all the Bible, and its opening words the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, are nearly universally known. The biblical imagery of God as shepherd starts much earlier than David's famous song, though. If you'll travel back with me to the beginning of the Bible, the end of the beginning, Genesis 48... There's a rascal on the pages of Genesis by the name of Jacob, and he was truly a rascal, and his life was a rascally life. He was a mess in his rebellious life, and at the end of his life, when he'd come to see the result of all his bad choices, but still... God's faithfulness in his life and surrounding his life so that at the end of his life in Genesis 48, he would say in verse 15, and he blessed Joseph and said, 
the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day. This declaration of faith from this patriarch Jacob acknowledged that at the end of his life, as he blesses his offspring, that God had been, unlike Jacob, never a rascal, always faithful, always patient, always guiding him, always providing for him. And it was Jacob's intention that his children would understand this. The story of God as shepherd begins with a patriarch's acknowledgement of God's provision and guidance throughout the course of his entire life. The story, though, continues and and really begins in in its full strength in the book of, of Exodus when God brings his people out of Egypt and he guides them through the wilderness for 40 years and and leads them safely to uh, their land. Places like Psalm 77 verse 20 captures the entire story of Exodus with words like this, Psalm 77 20, you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. If you look at Exodus 33, just flipping forward in your Bible, I know you're already having hand cramps from J-Mac dragging you through the, the whole thing. So there's a few verses he left out. I'm going to cover the rest of them. Uh, Exodus 33, verse 15. It says, He said to them, If thy presence does not go, this is Moses talking, If thy presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. For how then can it be known that I have found favor in thy sight, I and thy people? It is not by thy going with us, so that we and I and thy people may be distinguished from all the other people who are upon the face of the earth. You see, Moses' request is that God would be personally present with his people, that he would function as a leader, as a protector. Psalm 105 verse 40 says the same thing. In Exodus 15 and Numbers 21, continually the testimony of Scripture is that God is leading his people. He's providing for his people. He's, he's guiding them. In fact, if you skip back to Exodus 15, verse 16, just a few pages back from where you are, Exodus 15, verse 16. And then back up to verse 13, because that's the verse I want to show you. In thy loving kindness, thou hast led the people who you have redeemed. In your strength, you have guided them to thy holy habitation. This language is the language of shepherding, of caring for. God gently, tenderly drives his his people where he desires them to go. You could look at a place like Hosea 11, verse 4. It says, I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws and bent down to them and fed them. Or Psalm seventy-seven twenty that talks about Moses as a shepherd of the people, or or Numbers 27, 17, the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. And so God is presented throughout his people's journey, both their beginnings in the days of the patriarchs to their redemption in the time of the Exodus as a shepherd to his people. Jacob's prayer at the end of his life would be the experience that all of God's people would have, a knowledge that he shepherded them personally through all of their history. One of the ways that God did this is through human shepherds of his own appointment. And the most well-known shepherd after 
the ministry of Moses and in his shepherding of the people is David, King David, who was a shepherd, an actual shepherd, like he took care of sheep. And when he became the king, he continued in his shepherding role as the shepherd of Israel. Look over at Psalm 78, a description of this reality. Psalm 78. It's a long psalm. Look at verse 70. It says, He chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds. From following the nursing lambs, he brought them to shepherd Jacob his people, Israel his inheritance. With upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. You see, the the psalmist understands that David was well prepared to be the king of Israel because he had taken care of sheep before. As he had protected them from bears and lions and he had led them to green pastures and and watched over them with the responsibility and, and care that a shepherd would have had to have, that same kind of work was the way in which David led the people of Israel as king. And this is always reflecting who God is, that the king was an under-shepherd for God, who is the the shepherd of Israel. That's why Psalm 95, verse 7 says, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. This is why David wrote Psalm 23, to acknowledge that God was the one who was always leading his people, always caring for them. Ultimately, over and above all human shepherds and human leaders, Israel's shepherd kings were to lead the people to green pastures, to obedience of God's word, to faithfulness, to worship God and God alone. And when God would punish his people, when he would discipline his people, it was often called scattering his flock. And that's what it looks like when a a flock doesn't have a shepherd. They don't know where to go. They just spread all over. And when they're unshepherded and when they're scattered, they're in danger of wolves and of getting lost and all that would go along with being a scattered flock. Verses like Leviticus 26, 33 or Deuteronomy 4, 27 all talk about God scattering the flock because of their sin. And as you move towards the reality of Israel's idolatry and disobedience as she did not faithfully follow her shepherd king like Like Jacob's life story, one of rebellion and unfaithfulness uh, that didn't acknowledge God's faithful care in his life until the very end of his life, Israel as a people had the same kind of biography. Uh, If you go over to the book of Jeremiah, just for a bit here, go to Jeremiah chapter 23. Jeremiah 23, starting in verse 1. Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel concerning the shepherds who are tending my people, you have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not attended to them. Behold, I'm about to attend to you for the evil of your deeds, declared the Lord. Then I myself shall gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I've driven them and shall bring them back to their pasture and they will be fruitful and multiply. I shall also raise up shepherds over them and they will tend them and they will not be afraid any longer nor be terrified nor will any be missing, declares the Lord. 
Behold, the days are coming, verse 5, declares the Lord, when I shall raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely, and this is his name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. Verse 7, therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when they will no longer say, as the Lord lives, who brought us up the sons of Israel from the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives, who brought up and led back the descendants of the household of Israel from the north land and from all the countries where I had driven them, and then they will live on their own soil. I mean, this prophecy in Jeremiah 23 is a reminder that though the shepherds had become unfaithful, in Israel, and often the people had become unfaithful. God, as their ultimate shepherd, made a promise that someday he would provide for them a good shepherd, a fulfillment of all that was intended before, an embodiment of of God's care for his people. Jeremiah 3.15 says, I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. I mean, the prophecy we read in Jeremiah 23 has to do with a regathering, with a bringing of all of God's sheep together under good leadership, under right shepherding and care. I mean, Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6, I read to you, talks about that that righteous branch, the the prophecy of one reigning as a king and executing justice and righteousness. And this regathering, this this new exodus that's promised will have in it a faithful shepherd at the forefront. And that faithful shepherd will be followed by what Jeremiah 23 calls a host of many faithful shepherds that will care for the people, that will teach the people, and that will keep them in security and place them under God's rule and provision. This isn't a a minor theme in the Old Testament. You could look at Ezekiel chapter 34 to see a very similar indictment and promise. Bad shepherds feeding on the flock instead of protecting the flock, exploiting the sheep instead of doing what God called shepherds to do, which is be a reflection of his care and his provision and his protection over his flock. Isaiah chapter 40. There's another place you should turn. Isaiah chapter 40. Just go left from Jeremiah. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 11 gives us more of this imagery of a new exodus uh, to come. Just as God had used Moses, his shepherd, to move the people out of Egypt and into their own land, he promises that in the future there'll be another kind of exodus, and he describes it in verse 11. Like a shepherd, he will tend to his flock. In his arm, he will gather the lambs. He will carry them in his bosom, and he will gently lead the nursing ewes. Exodus 34 is even more detailed about the threats of the bad shepherds who failed to heal sick sheep, to rescue straying sheep, and now with the entire flock scattered, God promises to judge wicked shepherds and rescue sheep. God will seek out his own sheep. He'll gather them. He'll feed them. He'll lie down to rest and to care for. Verse 15 of Exodus 34 says it this way, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak. I will feed them in justice. Two words, in justice. God also promises in verse 23 of Ezekiel 34, I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them, he shall feed them and be their shepherd. This promise of shepherding, of of real care for the flock, of security and 
and freedom and, and provision and blessing and, and peace and, and good leadership is, is all throughout the Old Testament. God promises to provide as a shepherd to his people an embodiment of his own work as a shepherd. First through imperfect shepherds like Moses and, and David who will fulfill the role in part whose faithfulness will be sometimes a great example of God's shepherding care and in other times not so much. I mean, I don't know a lot about raising sheep. You know that I only tend to the chickens and even that is spotty leadership at best. I had an encounter with a coyote a few weeks ago. I'm not going to talk about it. ATD zero, coyote five. So... Anyway, but you understand that the work of a shepherd is, is a difficult work. The commitment that he makes is, is a significant commitment. And that metaphor is intentional because sheep never outgrow their need for the shepherd. You know, if you've ever had a puppy, you, you can't really leave the puppy much. He's got to be trained and, and taken care of and you know, he'll literally eat your entire house if you don't watch over him. You can't just, you know, go out of town for a couple days and think the puppy will be fine. When you have a dog, you know, somebody can come over and feed the dog. Unless you're an L.A. person and you have the dog that needs your constant friendship. And you're definitely sitting next to me on Southwest Airlines. Um, I always have a dog next to me on Southwest Airlines. I don't understand. Always a dog. But the, the sheep in the shepherd's relationship are always dependent. They never grow out of the need for leadership and protection. Newborns and old sheep, whether they are in the prime of their life or the beginning of their life or the end of their life, they always need a shepherd. And that comprehensive care is the picture that God chose to use to show that his flock needed to be cared for, that their well-being was his concern. And, and through these leaders like Moses, uh, one author says, E.J. Young, on the one view, it is God who delivered the people and with them the shepherd of his flock. On the other, it is Moses who's at the shepherd, brought the people up from the Red Sea. Uh, God is leading the people, but he's using Moses as, as his uh, emissary, as his under-shepherd caring for the flock of Israel. David, the same thing. The people of Israel rally around David as their king. And God says to David, 2 Samuel 5, 2, you will shepherd my people Israel and you will become their ruler. And so David's shepherding uh, is summed up in Psalm 78, 72 with words like this. David shepherded them with integrity of heart and skillful hands he led them. But you see, Moses can't endure. He gets 120 years of, of shepherding, of imperfect shepherding. And David can't endure because he's a mortal man. And, and so he can just represent God for his lifetime to the people. And in 2 Samuel 7, when the Lord tells Nathan to tell David not to build him a house, he uses the same kind of of terminology. It says, wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, God is speaking, did I ever say to any of their rulers who I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? You see, David wasn't to build God a house. And the point that's behind that concern that God expresses through Nathan to David is that the main concern isn't a house for God to be worshipped in, but a people for God to care for, a people who were commanded to be shepherded by God's appointed shepherd. And so Moses and David were called to shepherd the people of God, embody the shepherdly care of God, to watch over the people, to feed the people, to protect the people, to guide the people in the way that God himself wanted them guided. 
And the false shepherds, when they would come on the scene, would show the need even more for there to be a shepherd that could take care of the flock that wouldn't fail, that wouldn't be a a poor copy or a selfish and sinful manifestation of shepherding. I mean, those shepherds, the one indicted by Jeremiah and by Ezekiel, were more like Pharaoh than they were like Moses or David. And so David couldn't do the job completely, and Moses couldn't do the job completely. The people of God needed shepherd leadership. They needed care. They needed to be helped and guided and fed. But there was this inadequacy that time would show and that Moses' staff would be insufficient because of Moses' shortcomings, because of Moses' mortality, because of Moses' sin. I mean, Moses himself, he, he had one job, and it was to lead the people into the promised land. And it was because of Moses' sin in Numbers chapter 20 that God had to tell Moses that he wasn't even allowed to bring the people into the promised land. I mean, that's an epic failure of the shepherd's job. Moses was disqualified from entering because he didn't treat God as holy, Numbers 20 verse 12. I mean, David abused his power as shepherd king in the Bathsheba incident, didn't he? That was full-blown abuse of the sheep. And so Nathan has to go to David with that parable, remember? Nathan the prophet goes to David and tells him a story that there was two men in one city. One was rich, one was poor. The rich man had a great number of flocks and herds. It's a shepherding parable. And the poor man had what? One little baby sheep, which he bought and he nourished and it grew up with his kids and it lived in their house and it would eat from their table and it would drink out of his cup, which is gross. But I mean, these people were intimate with this little baby sheep and their family. Nathan the prophet says in 2 Samuel 12, this sheep was like a daughter to him. And then a traveler comes and knocks on the rich man's door and the rich man is unwilling to go out to the pasture and get one of his sheep. And so he goes to the poor man and takes his little pet lamb from the kids and kills it and cooks it and eats it for his guests. And I love David's response. He loses his stuff big time. And his shepherd instinct is evoked. And his indignation is super righteous. Second Samuel 12 says, Then David's anger burned greatly against the man, thinking this is like something happening in his kingdom, because it was just not the way he thought it was. And he says to Nathan, makes a vow, As Yahweh lives... Surely the man who has done this deserves to die. He must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and had no compassion. No compassion. David was activated in his righteousness because in this story, a shepherd lacked compassion. And all it took was for Nathan to flip the story. Sorry, I'm being attacked by a swarm of bees. (laughs) Nathan flips the story and says, Natachaish, you are that man. Because David sinned against his own people he was supposed to care for because he stole a wife from one of his soldiers because he had that soldier put in the front of the battle to be killed. David was more guilty than the man in the story. David thought 
How could anyone abuse the sheep that way? But his sin was worse because he abused God's flock. Not just a poor man and his one sheep, but this was God's domain, God's lambs. And David is the most shepherdly of all the kings, the one who wore it the most and wore it the best, and he's the one who sinned with Bathsheba. He's the one who killed Uriah the Hittite. He's the one who failed because of his lust, because of his frailty, because of his sin. And there it is, another shepherd who doesn't measure up to God's high standard. And then all those prophecies that we went through, Ezekiel 34, chastising those who would abuse God's sheep, failing to fulfill the most basic the necessities of care and leading and protection and feeding, but they're starving and they're killing and they're losing them to wolves and the shepherds are acting like wolves. Ezekiel 34 says, you eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. Shepherds were brutal and awful and they were doing damage, not to their flocks, but to God's flock. His flock had become a prey. The sheep had become food and the shepherds were feasting on them. Just like that bad man in the parable, Israel's leaders had become abusive and despotic and self-serving. And so God promises in the midst of all that judgment that he will restore his flock, that he will shepherd his flock, that a perfect shepherd will come. And Ezekiel promised it, and Jeremiah promised it, that a shepherd will come, and, and this shepherd will cause the people to know God in a, in a new way, in a powerful way, in a way that God has always intended them to know him. And that's why those closing words of Ezekiel 34 are so important, pointing to a good shepherd who will have no failings, no limitations. He will not lack compassion, and he will not fall short. You see, that's what Israel needed. They needed this shepherd who could not fail, not because of generational lack, because of mortality, not because of a waywardness in the course of his shepherding ministry, not one good season, then a bad season, then a good season, not that would come right to the edge of the promised land and then be disqualified, not a shepherd who would have his own appetites in mind, his own position, his own kingdom, his own agenda, but there would be a shepherd who would be good, a shepherd who would not be sinful, a shepherd who would never fail to make necessary provisions for the flock of God. There would be a shepherd in God's promise in the context of all the shortfallings of shepherds before, a shepherd to come that will make up for and will be a perfect contrast to all the false shepherds who had come before. Behold, the days are coming, Jeremiah 23, verse 5, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely, and this is his name by which he will be called, the Lord our righteousness. A righteous branch from the lineage of David. The minor prophets would sing this song as well. Micah picks up this theme, talks about the Messiah's birth, a description of the place he would be born, Bethlehem Ephrathah, the ruler over Israel who will stand, and Micah 5 to shepherd his flock in the strength of Yahweh, in the majesty of the name of Yahweh as God, 
and they will live securely for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. The metaphor of shepherd is so appropriate for God's relationship to his people. The history of Israel is a chronicling of imperfect efforts to shepherd the flock of God. But then when the shepherd comes and all four gospel writers look deep into this theme. John has two whole chapters in his gospel about how Jesus fulfills this so well. Luke spends time on it. Matthew spends time on it. He quotes from that passage in Micah that I just shared with you in the first chapter to remind us that this is the shepherd that was promised. Mark reserves it to this point in the story. Turn back to Mark chapter 6. What has just happened? Massive crowds follow Jesus everywhere. There's a flashback in the same chapter of one of these faithful shepherds that God sent to prepare the way for Jesus. His name was John the Baptist. And in an ugly, lecherous feast, he's killed, martyred for his faith his head chopped off and served on a platter. That episode we looked at a few weeks ago, framed by Jesus' commissioning of his disciples, of his under-shepherds, reminding them of the cost of what it means to follow Jesus, is where we pick up the story in verse 30 of Mark 6. It says this, The apostles gathered round Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught. And then... Because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat. He said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. What's happening here, you understand. This is the second time Jesus has said his disciples were so busy they couldn't even eat. The ministry was swamping the disciples. They were constantly inundated with people with needs. And Jesus offers them a a time of respite, of of relaxation, just maybe a weekend away. But it wasn't to be. Because as soon as they cast off in their boat the crowds knew exactly where they were headed. And so they spread word, they run like crazy, and by the time they hit the shore with the keel of the boat, there's a huge crowd there. Verse 34. He, when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. You see, Mark identifies that first mark of Jesus the shepherd in this way. Jesus was a compassionate shepherd. Jesus was a shepherd who was sympathetic who is compassionate. This word used in the Gospels only to describe Jesus is a word that means that that Jesus felt for them, that in the inner depths of Jesus' heart, he cared for this massive crowd. They were not an inconvenience to him. They were not in his way. They were not merely an impediment to rest for the disciples, but as he saw this huge crowd of people spoiling the plan that the disciples had to get away, Jesus' expression is compassion. It's love. It's mercy. It's sympathy. 
He looks at this crowd and he sees in this crowd not a bunch of mouth-breathing, miracle-seeking, hungry people. He sees them as what they were. They were the flock of God. And he saw them shepherdless. John is dead. Herod is wicked. The high priests of Israel were corrupt. And they didn't even understand what they wanted from Jesus. And he sees them as a sheep without a shepherd. And so he begins to teach them. To feed them. Jesus' words are like bread. Jesus' words are a feast. And he is meeting the needs of these sheep as a compassionate shepherd. The opposite of the parable that David heard from Nathan, the one about the cruel landowner who was a foul shepherd who would, without compassion, steal a sheep from his impoverished neighbor. Jesus is the embodiment of the opposite of that. He is the compassionate shepherd, the sympathetic shepherd, the shepherd whose heart is wide open to God's flock, who seeks to feed and lead the people who are scattered and harassed and shepherdless. Jesus begins to take on the mantle of the good shepherd the one that they had all been waiting for. Verse 35, by this time it was late in the day. So his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said. And it's already very late. Send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. Jesus wanted to expressly care for these people personally, And so he tells his disciples to feed this huge crowd of people. And they, in in this version of the story, respond most strongly. They said to him, that would take eight months, 200 denarii, of a man's wages. One denarii was a, a worker's wages for the day. This is eight months of wages, a huge sum of money to feed this many people, as many chicken wings as we had at the event yesterday. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? And so they rebuked the Lord, part of the beginning, the manifestation of their misunderstanding of who Jesus is. That'll be clarified in in the chapters to come. How many loaves do you have, Jesus asks them. Go and see. And when they found out, they said, five and two fish. Some see in the imagery of there being five loaves of bread some reference to the five books of Moses, but I report, you decide. I'm not ready to commit to that. But verse 39 does have some imagery there that I think is notable. And it tells us something else about Jesus besides that he's a compassionate or a sympathetic shepherd. Verse 39 says, Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. And so they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. You know, it's the same arrangement that you find in the time of the Exodus. God divided the camps into these same kind of groups of hundreds and fifties. Now, that could be, that's just a really good way to organize thousands of people into groups to feed them, and it certainly is that. But I'm open to that being an image that that Mark saw that was reflecting some of Israel's shepherding of the past coming yet again to fruition here. And, And even more than that, I think the detail that Mark puts into verse 39 when he says the people should sit down in groups on the green grass, it's just completely unnecessary for him to say that. To add that detail of the green grass So perhaps in our Lord's mind, as the compassionate shepherd, he sees himself fulfilling Psalm 23 and leads these people to green pastures, to green grass, and he feeds them and meets their needs. After organizing them, verse 41, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gives thanks and breaks the loaves 
And then he gives to his disciples to set before the people. Some have seen in this passage, uh, the early Christians certainly saw in this passage, a very early look at Jesus's providing a meal for his people that would be embodied in the communion celebration and the Lord's Supper. The same verbs are given here to break and to give and to give thanks. And whether that image is, is valid there or not, What we see is Jesus providing for all his people, the Savior, Shepherd, promised one who is going to fulfill all that God intended for his shepherds to do in this one person. He will provide for his people. He will lead them to a green pasture. He will meet their needs. He will feed them. He will teach them and build them, instruct them, and guard over them. He'll feel great compassion for them. And then he feeds them dividing the two fish among all of them. This is, we should note, a very powerful miracle. Jesus has done lots on an individual level. He's done nothing on this scale at this point in his ministry. He's not provided something this massive, this undeniable, and it appears that he didn't even do this for the crowd's sake because the crowd doesn't marvel, but the disciples do. He does this so that his disciples would understand that he is the true promised shepherd of Israel, that he is the the branch of David, that he is the Messiah that had been foretold and now to be received. And so they all eat, verse 42, and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. These disciples carried up all the leftovers and they made sure, the Lord made sure that there would be 12 baskets left over. Is that image of the 12 tribes of Israel, 12, that that number of disciples, that number that reflected the sons of Jacob, that number that is so the embodiment of Israel, perhaps, or perhaps it was just so that every disciple would have to lug this huge basket back because their lack of faith and their rebuke of Jesus when they said, we don't have enough money to cover all this, they all had to carry this huge basket, every disciple with one huge basket of food left over to remind them that Jesus as shepherd would not only be a sympathetic shepherd, but a sufficient shepherd. He met all their needs. They ate and were satisfied. There was an abundance in this feast. And Mark records the number of the men who had eaten was 5,000. 5,000 heads of households, 15,000 people in the crowd likely. And there was plenty of food for everyone. Lots of leftovers. Jesus is the promised shepherd of God. Jesus is the good shepherd. He saw in the people harassed and helpless sheep without a shepherd. He is the one, John 10.10, who comes to give abundant life to God's sheep as the good shepherd. He is the one, John chapter 10, who lays down his life for God's sheep. He is the one who knows his own sheep, who gathers all his sheep into one flock. He will fulfill every element of the metaphor of the shepherd. Israel in her wilderness will find rest only in Christ, Hebrews 4.11. And though they were weak and harassed and scattered, they would hunger no more. They would thirst no more. The sun would not strike them with scorching heat. Revelation 7 verse 16 says, for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Jesus is the good promised shepherd who fulfills the promise of God, who will gather all his sheep from every tribe and tongue and nation and provide as a chief shepherd under shepherds who will care for his flock until he returns. Jesus's shepherding ministry would continue in this chapter to the day when he would become the lamb who would be sacrificed to take away the sins of the world. 
And then it would continue as he would appoint shepherds to continue to feed the people with knowledge and understanding in the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And every time a faithful pastor answers God's call, he continues to reflect the shepherding work of Jesus. Gentle, compassionate, always pointing people towards the sufficiency of the Lord's provision. One author says it this way. On some high cliff, across which at night hyenas howl, when you meet him, sleepless, far-sighted, weather-beaten, armed, leaning on his staff and looking out over his scattered sheep, every one on his heart, you understand why the shepherd of Judea sprang to the front of his people's history why they gave his name to their king and made him the symbol of providence and why Christ took him as the type of self-sacrifice. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Father, thank you for sending Jesus, the perfect shepherd, to care for us to lead us on that new exodus, not out of Egypt, but out of sin and death and condemnation. Thank you for the shepherd who's also a lamb who would die in our place, providing for us all that we would need in abundant supply. Thank you that Jesus is our shepherd who cares for us and sympathizes with us and understands what we need. And thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who meets all our needs in great abundance. Every spiritual blessing in Christ is ours. So Father, I pray for those here who do not have a shepherd, who have not given their life to Christ by faith, that they would find in Jesus the care and provision and protection that their heart longs for, that they would lay down their rebellion and their unfaithfulness and willingly follow the good shepherd. Thank you that he is the one who leads us to still waters and green pastures and gives peace to our souls. Thank you for Jesus, the one who died for us and watches over us and provides for us spiritual care and nourishment so that we would follow him all the way to heaven's glories. In his perfect name, amen.